1: We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get free single tracks merch in the mail. This week, we're sharing a recent review from Lambrew. Lambrew writes, This is a one-stop shopping podcast. Great info that spans the spectrum, past, present, and future of mountain biking. The hosts are knowledgeable and engage with and draw out equally knowledgeable guests. More importantly, there is no bro science or similar attitude. This podcast puts me in a good frame of mind while providing strong content. Awesome cast, guys. Thank you. Well, Lambrew, ain't no way got time for that bro science, so... To thank you, please send us an email at info at singletracks.com and we'll get your shipping information. Be sure to add your review to the Singletracks podcast wherever you listen to our show.
2: Thanks and happy trails. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today I have 3 guests, Alex Gardner, Nick Gibson and Tommy McGrath. So Alex, Nick and Tommy started the Trans Cascadia Enduro Stage Race about 5 years ago and they've got a really interesting model that they've been using that blends tourism and advocacy and trail work and putting on a great event into one big package. And so we wanted to talk to them a little bit about that. Thanks for joining us guys.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
2: So like I said, you guys started the Trans Cascadia about five years ago. Nick, what did you as a group initially hope to accomplish?
3: Yeah, I, I, from my perspective, I don't think we necessarily, I, I didn't have the scope of what it's kind of turned into today. I didn't have the vision at that point, but what I did know is that I had done some racing overseas. We've all done some racing, but this trans-style racing wasn't available in the U.S. market. And after having competed in an event or two, it was super inspiring for me. And so I think from that, we felt like we needed to host this in our backyard and that our backyard was a perfect place to host something like this.
2: Yeah. Interesting. So Alex, how about you? Had you had any experience, uh, doing stage races like this,
3: uh, stage
1: races? Yes. Uh, trans style races like Nick experienced over in France, not necessarily, um, lots of mountain bike racing in my history and it was fun to watch Nick go over to France and they had daily updates. And so we were all, uh, following his progress each day either uh, with the results posted or we'd catch a glimpse of him on a video and it was super fun. And so that was a bit of inspiration
0: for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. What about you, Tommy? How'd you get roped into this?
0: Working together. So it was all a group effort and I had been to a ton of different races, both racing and also um, working as a tech rep for Shimano. I supported tons of the events. So we we all kind of knew what it was like to go to a current event in the U S and how good they were. And, And then Nick came back from Europe talking about Multi-day events, and so we all kind of starting about start talking about how we can make the ultimate
3: event.
2: Yeah, that's cool. So, Nick, how would you describe Trans Cascadia? Is it a race? Is it a party? Is it an event?
3: Yes, to all the above. It's it's a race, but I think it's primarily. I think it's definitely a reflection of our community, and it's 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 a US trans style race. Like it's 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 got US flavor to it, and I also think that. You know, we, we were just talking about it today, but the time of the year that we hold this race is, it can go either way on us, but what you can guarantee is moist dirt and good dirt. And so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's all those things above for us. I think for us who put it on, it's a culmination of, of, of a lot of work and a celebration of a, of a ton of trail work that got done over the summer and a celebration of the community that helped make that happen.
2: Yeah. Interesting. You said it's, it's a U.S. style. How does that differ from the European Uh, racing that you experienced
3: Uh, well i would say the social element of it is u.s style but you know i didn't have the chance to do all of the trans style races in the world but i was really inspired by trans provence and his his style was incredible it was for me the year i went it was six days long and there were six huge days of riding and i think we found that for for us and what what was comfortable to us peeling it back to four days was more manageable and And then the balance of the amount of riding in the day to the amount of socializing at the end of the day is I feel like a balance that we've really worked hard to get right. And so you come out to this event and I don't think you have to be super fit. I think you have to have a skill set that I think ultimately you got to have a a will to get through it. And and I think it's mostly, you know, I think the the social element of it is a huge part of it, you know, hanging out with like-minded people and sharing in, that experience of blind racing and and really good food and good culture, it's a special thing. That when you walk away from these events, you walk away. For me, still to this day, I talk to keep in touch with people at the Trans provence here that I went to, and it's, it's a sharing experience. It's a bonding moment. It's it's why we all do this. But it's really cool to pool a hundred plus people together because it just becomes bigger and more, more people, more more people to relate with and and create experiences with and. And that's what it's about for for I think for all of us is is just is the experience of hanging out with people, showing them your backyard, and and putting them through five days of of what we've envisioned as as some of the best days, the best riding in the world.
2: Yeah. Alex, what what would you say makes Trans Cascadia different from other multi-day enduro races, you know, particularly ones that are in the U.S.? There aren't a lot of them, but there certainly are a few. So so how's Trans Cascadia different in your mind?
1: Number one, it would be the Cascade Mountain Range, where we, we work and play and made a conscious effort to showcase this region to the world. And then the way that we put together the race, uh, like Min- Nick mentioned, the best five days you can find on a bike and the scouting and all the work that goes into finding the best pieces in any region that we travel. And the Cascade Range is a, a giant range. And so we've evolved over the five years to cover maybe 60% of that from near the California border. And we're heading up towards Canada now. And so... Um, The fact that it spans such a a large region and we're obsessed with finding new tracks. And so I think that the blind format is one that's been appreciated over the years and really adds to the experience. I mean, you only see a trail for the first time once and to do it in competition adds another level that's unique and, and you can't get otherwise.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Well, Tommy, you know, as Alex said, obviously one of the things that makes Trans Cascadia unique is the place where it takes place and the the mountains and the trails. Describe the trails for us. What's it like riding some of these race stages?
0: Well, being blind is always a big part of it, right? So you're you've got a you're in a race, but you realize you have to keep it around ninety percent um, or below, just because you don't always know what's coming up. But what you do know is that we've explored every single trail within hundreds of miles of where we're racing, mm-hmm. and that we've picked the best, most challenging, funnest trail that you're going to get for that day. And so uh, the trails are, are loamy. Like Nick was saying, with the, um, the time of year that we pick, the, the dirt is un- incredible, and the region is incredible. So the traction, the dirt, and the, um, the topo lines that we choose to chase are always primo, And so you're going to get something that's steep and fun and you're going to get something that's got incredible traction with some technical features in it. So that's what we look for. And um, that's what makes it really different than a lot of other races is that um, trying to find new trail like that every year, year after year, would be almost an impossible feat in most places in the country, if not the world. There's such a long history in the Northwest and the Cascades with old logging trails and old hiking trails and scouting trails that... There's a lot of uncovered stuff that we're able to recover. And a lot of these old hiking trails and these old scouting trails are um, ways that people got to the top of the mountains as quick as possible. So they're steep and they're, they're ridge lines and they're fun. And um, and they happen to be in the, the best dirt zone in the world.
2: Yeah. Well, why is it, in your opinion, that these trails aren't more popular, that they're not more well-known? Is it just sort of their condition or is it their remote location or what is it that... People are missing by not riding these trails.
0: They're hard to get to for sure. We always end up finding a group that that plays around that area, not always on the exact trails that we race on, because sometimes we're the first people to open them up and race them, in a, in a well, first person to ever race them, but really open them up in a long, long time. But there's there's a lot happening right now with flow trails and front country, and and a lot of city or, or you know local organizations putting a lot of effort into trails near town because that's the that's the gonna get the most use. And then in the U.S., we have a big problem with um, losing trails and losing wilderness area, and there is a lot of wilderness area. So there's an area that we can't go to, and then there's this really popular front country stuff, and then there's this kind of long-lost, forgotten-about zone in the center that's right on the outskirts, right on the borderline of that wilderness uh, that not only do we have to get to and uncover and scout and find, which takes time and, and energy, but also you have to get there. And so just the, uh, the overall... D- time it takes to go ride a 10 mile trail can be substantial and uh, a lot of people don't know they're there to do. They're definitely not going to explore in the middle of the woods, try to find a trail to ride.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that's a big part of the race support that you guys provide is obviously shuttling people to the trails, you know, providing maps and all that kind of thing so that people can ride the trails and enjoy it. Uh, What else, Alex, would you say, what kind of support you provide the riders when they're not racing during the the Trans Cascadia?
1: The best of everything (laughs) from food to uh, remote campsites, just the quality of of staff that comes out. Yeah, I mean, the the race is based on, it's a blind race with gourmet food, (laughs) uh, big fires and a a social scene, um, open bar. We've implemented a cocktail bar. Uh, that's hosted by our good friend wick and and that's free of charge for all the days that you're there and we've got multiple beer sponsors so we're always trying to curate the best pieces of the region to share with the people to go along with the best route on these backcountry trails
2: Yes. Yeah, so i imagine too though you're in a remote area it sounds like backcountry campsites and things like that is there what about like if people have mechanicals or things like that? I don't imagine you're like close to a bike shop in town or anything. Is there any support along those lines?
1: We do bring tech support. Our title sponsor Shimano. Um, we have a couple we have a tech rig out there to help out. Um, we also ask and encourage people to bring uh, unique pieces that they may have on their bike and prepare for this long journey. Right. Um, but inevitably we're always scrambling wheels get used off of bikes or volunteer bikes or, or derailleurs. We even had a uh, rear triangle that switched out from oh, wow. uh, one of our sponsors, employee bikes. Thank you, Santa Cruz and Sam for that. So, I mean, it's, it's racing. Everybody's in on it, no matter whether you're downtown crit or you're out in the back country. Uh, it seems like everybody's involved and and making sure that, we keep moving forward. So yeah, we try to do our best, but inevitably something goes sideways at times. People will have to ride a completely different bike, a borrowed bike, but we tend to get through it somehow each year.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Tommy, a lot of people hear Pacific Northwest and they think rain and clouds. What's the weather usually like during the event?
0: So we've had it all. That year one, up at Lake Tippanagas outside of Oak Ridge. Uh, day one, people were paddleboarding and swimming and having a great time. And on day four or day th- day two, we left that campground. And day three, we went back up to get some cars picked up that uh, retrieved some cars that we left out there from some staff. And there was like, I don't know, 12 inches of snow up there. Oh, wow. And so, uh, and then we've had some some really good sunny years. We've had a little bit of rainy years. And this year we got Mother Nature danced around us the whole time we had a couple of days of um, cold weather and a couple of days of snow weather. What was cool about this year was we got snowed pretty heavily on our, our last day mm-hmm. and our, our medical team who we listen to and, and work with extremely closely, you know, sat us down in the morning. We're like, what do you guys think? We have a huge day out there and there's four or five inches of snow. And they said, we don't think we should race it. Uh-huh. We said, fair enough. So we canceled the race. We told anyone who wanted they were uh, free to go home, and we had a shuttle to get them back to their cars, or they could stay and go on a group ride with us. Yeah, and we ended up having some some hundred, like I think, 140 people, including some staff, go on this amazing group ride up to the top of the hill, and everyone brought one piece of firewood and one beer. (laughs) <laughs> at the top there ended up being a full-on bonfire with uh, everyone having a beer and what was supposed to be a bummer deal like we canceled day of racing has come back feedback wise as maybe one of our best days ever wow. just the ability to adapt and have fun and roll with the punches and and not let you know the the region and mother nature kind of controls
1: mm-hmm.
0: controls it. and so we uh we have really good groundwork and um that's what we do best we adapt and we know that we're in the woods and if someone's hurt we get them out the best way you know possible if, if someone's hungry we feed them the best food we can possibly get out there we've got uh luxury showers in the woods and if, if it snows on us we give you the best time you can have so um i think that's kind of where we separate a little bit as as uh, we adapt extremely well out there
2: yeah that's cool
0: and, and weather's weather's one of them that we have to really
2: adapt to mm-hmm Yeah. I mean, it sounds like good vibes all around and you've built this amazing community around the people who, who end up signing up for this race every year. Nick, I know you guys formed a new advocacy group or this sort of formed out of your work, the Oregon mountain bike coalition. And how did, how did that come about? Exactly. I know you guys didn't start out to create an advocacy organization. You you wanted to put on a race, but this kind of naturally came out of it, right?
3: It did. Yeah. I mean, as a note, Trans Cascadia is a nonprofit and, you know, a good portion of what we do is, is advocacy, either lobbying or doing actual trail work. You know, Tommy spoke about wilderness and, and preservation of wilderness is important. It's a bummer that bikes can't, can't recreate there, but I do think to conserve our lands, it's 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 an important thing. If, if bikes could be included, I think that would be great. The Oregon Mountain Biking Coalition, it was in response to a wilderness proposal that a group out of Oregon called Oregon Wild put forth. It's called the Crater Lake Wilderness Proposal. And this would have essentially, it would remove a few hundred miles of really primitive single track, the stuff that we like to ride, the stuff that we all hope our kids can ride at some point. I think this, this front country experience is where a lot of people play right now, but I do believe we've, as people evolve in their in their mountain biking, they'll they'll want to see the backcountry, and I think we're starting to see a surge in that people's interest to get further and deeper. But yeah, I sat down at the table with this, and and I and I saw that that as a mountain bike community from a statewide level, that we weren't as well planned up as we probably should be, and so the Oregon Mountain Biking Coalition is kind of a, a response to that in particular, trying to get all these great advocacy groups from around the state to come together under one voice and have a pointed message when it comes to these statewide, these statewide conversations. And it's really important for no matter what state you're in to have a real cohesive message when you're entering these conversations. Yeah. And so, yeah, Oregon Mountain Mount Biking Coalition is still in evolution, but I think we're up to 13 organ, member organizations from around the state of Oregon and it's continuing to get stronger and our message is becoming tighter and it's going to be a great tool to advocate for mountain biking in in Oregon. And so, yeah, we're pretty proud of that.
2: Yeah. Where are these existing organizations, these 13 groups that are sort of working with the Oregon mountain bike coalition? Are these new groups that were formed or are these existing ones that you're kind of coordinating with more?
3: Yeah, they're existing. I think they're all existing and they're all all doing amazing work. It's a combination of like in, in the Portland metro area, you've got Northwest trail Alliance and I'll name a few. you got Northwest Trail Alliance, and, and then you've got Central Oregon Trail Alliance, CODA. Um, in the Oak Ridge area, you've got GOATS, uh, Greater Oak Ridge Area Trail Stewards, and you've got Disciples of Dirt down there. And everybody's doing great work regionally. Mm-hmm. Just a slight modification of adding, of pooling us together into conversations, which is ultimately what OMBC does, Yeah, I think gives us an opportunity to come together annually or semi-annually have a conversation make sure that we're all on the same page and and ultimately yeah i mean all these regional groups are doing good work and you know i think you take it to one extreme where you've got imba on one side who's a national level organization trying to drive a national message and and as we we all know it gets really tough when you've got a, a national level organization coming into a regional area mm-hmm. and trying to dictate that message i think it's really best left to to the local area trail stewards they know it the best yeah they're doing the work constantly and so ombc is really is a combination of these these 13 member organizations it's really it's really them ombc is just a combination of all these user groups or these trail stewards getting together and it just gives us a, a, a a more pointed platform to speak from
2: yeah that's cool Alex, this year the Trans Cascadia began working with the Backcountry Horsemen, which is a, an equestrian group, to help maintain some of the trails. How did that relationship form, and what have you been able to accomplish together?
1: That was, uh, I think, the relationship started, and Nick can speak in in greater detail. But we were invited to a meeting uh, a couple of years ago at the end of the season, and they saw the work that we had done our first year in the Gifford Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of washed out roads in that forest. And, and that didn't detour us. We found our way around. We went in and we got the trail work done. And I think that our work uh, spoke loudly and they put out an invitation to attend this meeting. Uh, Nick and Ben were able to go there and met with these guys and forged a relationship that then uh, led to a couple of collaborations this year. And I think they were wholly positive, getting to know each side. Uh, We learned many, many things from them, especially out on trail, how to move big logs and debris. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Using uh, uh, blocks and pulleys. Um, We were out there with uh, uh, chains.
2: And horses? Do they use their horses? And
1: horses, absolutely. They packed in a lot of uh, uh, things by horse for us. So it was a great collaboration and a lot of fun to work with them. Um, I grew up around horses as a kid, so it seemed kind of commonplace, but I know that it's not for a lot of people. and So, yeah, you know, as the new kids on the block, as far as trail users go, we've still got a lot to learn. And uh, it was nice to apply our enthusiasm and strengths to their knowledge to uh, repair a bridge deep in the forest this year. Um there was a planned part of our race that day actually got snowed out. But uh, it's something to be proud of the work that we've done together and hopefully uh, can lead to future collaborations.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Nick, it sounded like you guys had a really cool work party with the equestrian group and you guys camped out with them and everything. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, we like Alex mentioned, we had we had two work parties with them this year. The first one you know, a lot of where we operate is deep, deep in at the top of mountaintops. Those are the hardest places to brush and to log out. And so our first work party was with the, uh, with Santa Cruz. We, we got packed in. We got all of our tools packed in, night of meals, and we got to camp out on top of this mountain so that our next day of trail work would be a little bit easier. And it allowed us to get to this really tough zone that was just otherwise almost impossible to maintain. Um, that was the first work party. The second work party was a collaboration between us and BCH, and I think there was well over 100 people attending from both communities. Yeah, we had a uh, we had a big pig roast, and we got to work side by side with these folks. And, you know, I think one of the guys was quoted as saying everybody hates their neighbor until you get to know them, right? And I think that's the same thing with these people, man, is they're, they're good, hardworking people. And they have a skill set that's complementary to what what ours is. And like Alex mentioned, you know, working with rigging equipment, logging, dragging twelve thousand pound logs into place is not a skill set that we have. But we got to learn from them and and work work aside them, kind of meal together, and yeah, it was an amazing collaboration. We've got a lot in common with this group, and we hope to keep it going. And and yeah, I think it was a an amazing thing to experience that we hope we can keep keep forging forward.
2: So Tommy, I'm interested to ask you what's sort of your ideal bike setup for a race like this. It's several days, it's some pretty rough and fast trail at times. So what what kind of bike would you recommend people bring for the race?
0: Uh well, most importantly it's something they're comfortable on. <laughs> but th- you've got the guy like for example, like a Aaron Bradford or Jeff Cabush, one of those guys, they uh, usually kind of show up with a little bit bigger of a bike because they they're comfortable with climbing that big bike up the hills, and they know that they they know that they can handle a, a thirty five or thirty four pound one sixty travel downhill casing tire up the tr- up the trail, and that they know that they've got the weapon they want for going down the trail but you also run into the people that know that they're doing 4,000 feet a day for four, four plus days, that they might want something a little bit more forgiving on the climbs and, and some hike a bike stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's understanding that, but then realizing that, you know, you are, you are in the backcountry you are racing. So durability is pretty important. So I usually say somewhere around that, like that mid travel bike, the, the mega towers and the reckonings and the SB one sixties, like those big one sixty travel bikes are super fun and capable, but they're they can be a little big. Uh and then you go full cross-country bike, like a a tall boy, for example, or something like that, is you're gonna be a little undergunned on some of the stuff. Or sorry, not tall boy, but a yeah, blur. Um, you're gonna be undergunned on a lot of the downhill stuff. So those those mid-level bikes are are what I'd suggest around that one one thirty to one fifty travel with some real tires on it. And some, you know, some big brake rotors.
2: Yeah. Did people ever people ever show up with hardtails? Uh,
0: you know, I don't know if we've ever had a hard tail. We had a guy year one, I think yeah, we've had some hardtails. We've had uh, Fuzzy, who's a product manager for Fatback, he came a couple of years on his fat bike to oh, um wow. hardtail. <laughs> and I'd be mean, like Fuzzy knew what he was getting into. I tried to advise him not to, and um he did it, he had a blast, he came back next year and did it again. And we might have had a hardtail out there one year. I don't. I don't think so though. We did have a. Um, what about a, Peter from Mexico? Peter was on a full suspension, but it was twenty six inch. Okay. Oh, well, that's <laughs> kind of like a hardtail. It was. Yeah. So uh, Peter actually showed up from Mexico wearing the clothes he was going to ride in all week, <laughs> and. Um, And he brought and shoes, shoes, yeah. And no sleeping bag, no real tent or anything like that. He was sleeping by the fire one night, melted his (laughs) shoes away. So, (laughs) wow. So, I gave him my shoes and he kept going, but he ended up flatting his tube. And no one, one, not too many people have tubes. Most people are set up tubeless these days. And two, nobody had a 26 inch tube. And so, he melted his tube by the fire and put it back together, put it back in his bike, and then finished the race. It was extremely impressive. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's I think that's the first time I've heard of a, a tube being melted. I guess that would work. I don't know. I have to th- throw a lighter in my pack.
0: It worked. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty impressive.
2: <laughs> well, uh, Alex, do you have any training tips for people who are thinking about doing trans Cascadia? Is this a race where like you got to really train for it for months and months or is it something where, you know, somebody who's in pretty good shape can can tackle it and have a good time? Yes. Yeah. Depends on your attitude, I guess.
1: Absolutely. And life training would be the most important to approach Trans Cascadia because you're going to see some things that you're going to need to to deal with on the fly from the tracks to uh, what goes down uh, at the camp at night.
2: Oh, I see.
1: Just good overall fitness and a willingness to embrace adventure. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely to Tommy's point on bike choice, the fitter person you are, the bigger bike you can get to the top and, and potentially have more fun. But really, it's just uh, a spirit of adventure and uh, toughness and spirit.
2: Yeah. I mean, would this be good for people who have maybe never done an enduro race? Would this be approachable for them? Or would you want to have at least done it a few times to understand what it's all about? They
1: would both give different experiences. The first year, we had 66 people start. Um, I believe Dave Gettler, owner of River City Bikes, had never done an enduro and so you know he made it through and and he was part of a greater community that that helped him through it so i mean definitely being fit and and trained for anything that you do is gonna ease the burden the community that comes out to this event the direction that we give at the start of the event is that everybody comes in safely because everybody's looking out for each other so Mm -hmm. if you're down on a day and and you're not feeling it physically it's pretty easy to recover the next day uh, with all the people around and all the encouragement. So,
2: yeah, very cool. Well, Nick, you mentioned that uh, Trans Cascadia is a nonprofit organization. Is organizing and promoting the race a full time job for any of you guys?
3: It's not. No, it's a it's a labor of love for sure, and it's a it's a part time gig. I mean, we have a general love and interest in trails and and what to ride in our backyards, so I think it it comes pretty naturally, and mm-hmm. we have an amazing. Nathan Freckin and, and Ben McCormick are two guys that help us out, help organize and, and yeah, provide a bunch of support. And then we have a, an insane volunteer community that carries a heavy weight. And, you know, I think the culture that's the culture we have is just to help each other out, to work hard to get it done and open up trails. And it's, you don't need to give people a lot of direction out there. Like I think people see. What's being created and the work that's being done, and everybody's keen to give it their best.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Alex, I imagine that it takes a lot of volunteers though to pull something like this off. Uh, how do you guys get volunteers, and how many people does it generally take?
1: And we're about one to one ratio of racer to volunteer. So this year, I believe we had close to 90 volunteers um, beyond our staff of, of about 10. And I, you know, that's the question perplexes me, it, especially when we're out there in the heat of the race. I, I wonder what makes a person want to volunteer to come out to do this. And initially, I think it's easy. Um, but once you get out there and you see how hard these people work and dedication they have to making sure that the racers have a good experience and that everybody's taken care of, it comes wholly from within. So I think that over time, I mean, we get a lot of repeat volunteers. So um, there is some some gratification from those that come out to see us, but somebody that wants to come out and know a little bit more about the region uh, that wants to volunteer and advocate uh, for trails and our community. We've been really extremely lucky with volunteers, and I'm not sure what comes from inside to make a person want to do that. Mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can't really speak for anybody, but when we get them out there, everybody certainly gives their all.
2: yeah, that's that sounds awesome. Tommy. I want to ask you, how does sort of the work flow for an event like Trans Cascadia? Are you guys working on this year round? I know right now you guys just had a meeting with the Forest Service and this is only what less than two months since since this year's race was over. So you're you're ten months out from next year. How's it, are you guys busy like all year working on this or does it kind of come in waves?
0: A little bit comes in waves when when you asked if it was a full time job, and Nick said no, it's a labor of love. <laughs> it, he is correct when it comes to a labor of love and financially being compensated for a full time job. But I think all three of us would consider this a full time job. I mean, that's, that's forty hours a week. It's it can be pretty close. Oh wow! But it's fun, right? And, it, and it's it, we're all kind of taking different polls of different things. But it, it definitely does go year round. Right now, we're uh, we're sitting in a parking lot of a forest service ranger district uh national or regional office and we just got done with the meeting showcasing you know showing them what we'd like to do next year and where we'd like to go and some of the trails that we're looking at and campground suggestions and stuff like that and the last you know so previous to this meeting uh nick has been scouting uh nick and alex have been scouting extremely deeply into like the topo lines and forgotten trails and areas that don't look like they're used much but there looks like there could be something there and so mm-hmm we have the scouting process and then right before that, and even up into about last week is kind of cleanup from the year before where we're, um, you know, tidying up invoices and still moving some luggage and tools and materials around and doing follow up with, uh, sponsors and people and, um, just kind of putting the, the, you know, the clothes to that. And then we kind of start the scouting and the, and the forest service meetings for the next zone or the next year. And then starting you know tomorrow on we have, um, Sponsorship meetings and we have to get uh, registration up and running and then there's the whole sellout, you know, and, and waiting lists and that kind of stuff. But then we do get like this little break in the winter where it's snowing so we can't go build or scout trail and the race event is usually sold out by this point so we're not trying to promote it too hard to sell it so we get a little bit of a break and then it's right about like uh sea otter or pre-sea otter ski Or Sorry. Um, yeah. Ski season's over and bike season is, is kicked in and we're, we're kind of jamming again. We're starting to figure out how soon we can get back into the woods. And then we've got to work with all of our vendors from refrigeration trucks to chefs, to bathrooms, to showers, water supply, all that kind of stuff. And then the work parties start. Once the work parties start, it's uh, about every two weeks we're. Um, in the woods, and they take about two weeks to plan, and then you get in the woods and start opening and building and cutting and clearing trails and scouting for the race days and perfecting corners and stuff like that, and then the race happens. So yeah, it, it's a it goes year round for sure.
2: Yeah, that's crazy too to think of all the different skill sets you need to do that. Right, you got to navigate the forest service and sort of that government bureaucracy, and you also have to do all the logistics and the trail work. And, you know, you also have to be cool mountain bike guys that know like what's fun on a mountain bike. And so, yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing that you're able to pull it off with the team that you guys have in place. So I want to ask each of you, I guess, and it's probably, I'm sure you all have the same vision, but I'd like to get each of your take on it. What what is the vision for the future of trans Cascadia? I'll start with you, Nick.
3: Well, I think that the trail, the trail work aspect of it is, is super important and so the, the future has to include trail maintenance or continued trail maintenance of the of the networks that we've opened up i think i think that's that's the biggest thing i'd like to see i mean for me selfishly i love this event because it opens amazing backcountry networks and gets them up to speed to where you want to ride them and mm-hmm. that's super important so yeah i think the future of this thing is is getting it to a point where we're gonna we're gonna have a burnout point i mean to tommy's to Tommy's point, it, you know, it is a lot of work and it is super fun, but there is going to be a, a, a tipping point. And ideally, at that point, we find a, a good handoff and a community that wants to take this thing over and keep it, keep it alive so that we can keep these these backcountry networks open and alive.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Alex, what do you think? What's your vision? Is there any desire to open this up to more people to let more people experience Trans Cascadia?
1: Well, that's something I push back on constantly is the number of people that come out to the race. But the experience of Trans Cascadia is everywhere that we've been and and potentially places that we haven't been yet. So, I mean, in any zone that we have improved the trails or put together certain routes for uh, the best way to flow through a zone is an experience that anybody can uh, have for themselves if they want to invest in the time and and you know contact us for the info we're happy to share it
2: yeah but they don't have access to your gourmet chefs and you know your your legendary parties
1: well no they don't and that's a -a one-time-a-year deal at least for the race but the work parties are like little mini trans cascadia's and Ah. uh, as far as the vision that i see for uh the race and the entity Much like Nick mentioned, advocacy is our future, and it's something that got us all into this in the first place. The race is a celebration of the trail work that we've done, and that's evolved over time as well. So it's hard to say. The race is a wonderful, fun event. I'm not sure it's sustainable to outdo a party every year. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, We're having a pretty good time, and last year was our best ever, so... I think as we evolve and mature, that uh, will change. But ultimately, the vision is to advocate for trails in the region
0: that we work and play.
2: Yeah, what would you add to that, Tommy?
0: Nick and Alex really kind of covered a lot of what I'd say. One of the things that I really want to be complete before I put my stamp on it, or I'm happy to hand it off, or or you know, drastically change what we do on a day to day with Trans Cascadia is. That people understand that it is like Alex said, a celebration of the year-long work. It's not us putting up a registration fee. You give us twenty-two hundred dollars. You show up to the race, and we give you twenty-two hundred dollars worth of bike racing. Although people that come are spent, you know, do do that. In reality, that twenty-two hundred dollars or your whatever the entry fee is for the year that's funding a year long advocacy support that's funding meeting after meeting with forest service, trying to show them that us bikers are good people Mm -hmm. and that our advocacy is, is there for everybody with backcountry horsemen, with hikers, with moto, you know, we, we want to leave a legacy and a stamp behind us of like these amazing open trails. And that, you know, Alex said it earlier today when we were talking, like, we've made trail looking look kind of fun for a lot of people and that it can be a cool weekend to go build trails with your buddies and might as well have a party out of it and so if we continue that kind of legacy of like trail work and that this race is celebration at the end then i'm gonna be super happy i I had a couple people uh this year i I heard the comment that the you know the race was twenty two hundred dollars it's a lot to do the race and i was like well the race itself is not $2,200. It's funding a year of advocacy. And I want it when, when I know that people understand that Mm -hmm. that's, that's when I'm happy. I I want other groups around the country to be able to charge a lot of money for an event because that money is used year round supporting the trail systems. And the race is just simply a celebration of that. Yeah. So that's, that's where the, the legacy for me kind of goes.
2: Yeah. That's a really cool way to think about it. You know, I mean, it sounds like the race is awesome and it's not for everybody though. Right. I mean, the work that comes out of it is what's for everybody. And and I think it was Alex who said, you know, anybody can go and ride these trails that are made better because of the race. Um, and so, yeah, if you don't have 2,200 bucks, then just enjoy the fruits of all the labor that's been put into this thanks to, you know, the people who are able to do that. So that's, that's really cool.
0: And I feel like there's a way to, um, you know, if you're a busy, busy family, man, you've your busy job, you got a big family, you can't go build trails and go to the race then, then find your way to support the efforts, uh, you know, of, of Trans Cascadia or the likes of us, someone like us. If you've got, you know, no money, but you really want to be a part of it, then then come out and do some work parties with us, we'll feed you and fund you. And and if, if we really needed to, we can find some sponsorship programs, you know, some, some uh, tuition kind of stuff where if you, you come work for us, it's scholarship. Exactly. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you come do some work parties with us, put your time in, carry around a chainsaw. Like we'll help you out. Like we'll, uh, we'll put our money where our mouth is for sure.
2: Yeah. That's cool. So, Nick, do you think this model could work in other places? I mean, it sounds like there's a kind of a unique situation there with the trails and the, sort of the need for opening trails back up and maintaining them. But do you think this could work other places?
3: 100%, and we hope that people do. I think from race promoting is tough. Most of the time, people think you're charging too much, whether it's 2200 bucks or it's 150 bucks. And I, I think if you take a look inside the promoter's lens it's it's a lot of work for little monetary gain but there is so much to be gained out of the philanthropic work that it is and you know we're this this is our you know we've been in the bike industry for for all of our careers and so this is kind of a natural progression for us to refine our craft and to be a part of our industry in a positive way and and our industry is the bike industry and and what keeps it moving forward is is this and so i yeah i think the trail the trail maintenance aspect is kind of, it's not really well known by the average rider. Like I think a lot of people I heard the other day, like, yeah, the forest service maintains these trails. Right. And it's like, well, (laughs) I think in the region that we're sitting in right now, there's over 5,000 miles of single track to maintain, you know, in, in, in a, in a seasonal area with fires and with snow, your window to get out and do work is really small and the budgets are tight and they need volunteer labor and, and, You know, we can always use more, but to Tommy's point, I think it's more educating people to be like, look, yeah, come out, come out to a work party with us. Like it's catered, you know, you've got like-minded people there, you develop great relationships, you come out with some hard work and an effort, you see what happens to get these trails open. You feel really good about it, but there's a lot of people that work and have families and and that can't do it. And so whether you're donating a dollar or $5, like those things really make a difference to... Not only our, our advocacy organization, but to whatever your local chapter or your local group is like, we we definitely promote people to get out there and, and rate, you know, racers, racers and promotion is a good way to, I think, educate riders that, hey, it's important to give back. And hopefully these promoters can can build the value in their in their race fee. And also to Tommy's point, edu- educate like this twenty two hundred dollar fee that we charge is to help us stay in the woods. Like you can't just host a race. You have to do the trail work. You have to do the goodwill. You have to reach out to your community and you have to do the work. And yeah, we, we, we definitely hope promoters are, are watching this. I think a, a new trans event just popped up like maybe in Montana or Idaho. Hmm. And I apologize to those guys for not knowing it off the top of my head, but they're, they're kind of adopting that model as well. And I think it's a, it's, it's a great model to, to look at for sure.
2: Yeah. It seems like it is. And there's a lot of opportunity, for other people to take this idea and run with it in their area. So yeah, really awesome. Really glad that you guys were able to share that with us and, uh, tell us more about it. Alex, what are the dates for the 2020 race? Have you guys settled on that yet?
1: We are within a two week window. Okay. Typically we're that last week in September, things in our personal lives and, and weather, uh, we're looking to adjust maybe a little bit earlier, but we're still in that magic zone of late summer, a touching winter, Okay, which is necessary for the trails that we wanna be in.
2: Yeah, cool. And when is registration gonna open? It sounds like you guys often sell out, so people definitely wanna register early, I'm guessing.
1: Um, typically, we've held it in February, so be on the lookout there. We'll put it out through the media channels and, and make sure that people know. Uh, we always let our alumni, we give them a week head start on registration and then I open up to the public, uh, typically middle February.
2: Okay, cool. Well, thank uh, all of you guys for joining me, taking the time, uh, to tell us about the race. It's been, it's been really fun.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure.
2: Well, you can learn more about Trans Cascadia, the race at trans-cascadia.com and be sure to check early next year for registration information. So I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.